Welcome to the Farcast. Over 200 episodes and still going strong, bringing you experts and insiders to help you navigate the investing landscape. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week, February the 3rd. We made it through Groundhog Day. That was a pretty good thing. Six more weeks of winter. How about that? On the calendar, if you check, we actually have six and a half more weeks of winter. So we could even, if we want to, see that as a really optimistic sign, as a little less winter from Puxatani Phil. Uh, anyway, uh, Groundhog's Day was not great for the stock market, or at least for the tech market. Certainly, we looked at PayPal and started to watch that one go down. Then we saw, after the close, Facebook, oh my goodness, Numbers weren't horrible. I mean, it wasn't a good quarter for them, but do you really take a stock that big and knock it down 20%, 20%? I mean, come on. This is a huge, huge company uh, with, a, with a whole lot of cash flow, a whole lot of cash flow, a whole lot of cash and a pretty good business model. And about, and about 80% of all of the uh, internet users uh, uh, out there. I mean, they've got at least two thirds of them, something like that. A lot of user base, a lot of advertising potential. This looks like an overreaction this morning. As we come into the end of the week, futures are looking lower and the NASDAQ may give up some. As we go through this correction and transition in monetary policy, and the Fed is, is going to tighten in March, everybody's all upset about this market pullback, but they're, they haven't tightened yet. They haven't done anything yet. It's coming in March. And everybody says, well, here's the correction because the Fed's starting to tighten. Well, they're not starting to tighten yet. They, they, they looks like they will. 10-year Treasury now hovering at that 180 level. And we are seeing better numbers out of Omicron. So uh, as the world might be a little more contagious, the impact is a bit less severe. And we're watching markets transition to this new pricing of pandemic to endemic and a world where the Fed is no longer providing stimulus on every downturn. What does all this mean? We go to Chicago, to your fan favorite, and our great friend, Jim Urio, uh, who is the managing director of TJM Institutional Services. He is the really, he is, he is the voice of the Chicago Exchange. Welcome back, Jim. Thank you, Michael. We're so glad you're here. What do you make of all of this volatility and all these poor tech stocks are taken out and shooting? Okay, so there's something that you didn't mention when you talk about the fact that the Fed hasn't tightened. Not only is the Fed not tightened yet, they are still buying bonds. So the talk That's of right. them, the talk of them pivoting to hawkish is absurd talk. They 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 pivoted from ultra ultra dovish to just dovish. I heard somebody describe it as <laughs> they're still pouring gas on the fire. They're just pouring less gas. Um, that's not the same thing as pivoting to dovish. That matters. Um, now, the tech stock, I was just going through the charts. So, so here's, here's the deal. We had a, we had a lot of built-up speculation in, in a, a very narrow amount of names. Um, but now to put this in perspective, Netflix is corrected to the tune of about 50%. NVIDIA is corrected to the tune of about 40%. I'm talking about at their lows. Yes. Um, Amazon, 28%. Um, these are not insignificant moves. Apple and Google, not as much, probably 16 17%. They were more consistent with the NASDAQ on the way down. But the point I'm trying to make is that if, if you want to figure out where this next giant spill-off is going to come from, it's rarely about the fundamental story changing that drastically, although we are in a situation where the fundamental story is changing drastically. But the the problem is that people bull up, people forget risk, market position gets so top heavy that selling begets selling. So the question we must ask ourselves is the selling wave that we saw good enough to shake out the weak hands and is the correction basically over? My answer to that is yes, I believe that's true. I had, you know, from from a month ago, I said 13% in the S&P, 16 to 18% in the NASDAQ, kind of near where we got to. They fell a little bit short. So I think that that's good enough. And I'll bolster my argument with the fact that some of those names got really just absolutely pummeled and have since come back a little bit. Amazon's come back into a range that I'm comfortable with. I think, I think we go higher. Now, that being said, we are still getting used to this new world of higher rates, which absolutely means that we must reset valuations. And that's the volatility that we're seeing to try to figure things out. You mentioned the good news. The good news is, is it seems obvious to even casual observers, except for politicians in blue states. Is that the Democrat <laughs> states? It seems to casual observers, except for them, that we're coming out of this and the need for regulations is much, much less than it was. So I think we're in a good spot that way, but there still needs to be some more volatility. 
And the volatility really does shake out those weaker hands. We're, we're seeing a lot of that reaction, Jim, that we see at the beginning of bear markets, as I think back uh, through my all of my gray hair, uh, where they want to shoot the stock first and ask questions later. They press the sell button first and ask questions later. It's weird to see it happening in some of these larger, almost blue chip names. Uh, it, when, 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 you, when you hit a Facebook 20%, it's hard to believe that 20, you know, that there were that many sellers lined up to drive that many shares. This is a huge market cap. This is a very liquid stock. That's a lot of selling that has to step in. And maybe there was, I think there was a fairly short, large short position coming into this earnings number. It's amazing to me, like like you said, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. I paraphrase, but that's what you meant too. Like they shoot shoot first, ask questions later. And that's the way it's supposed to work when you know things are so highly correlated. And to underscore that point, I'll talk about cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ethereum for one second, is that you know, for years we've been trading these things, and for years we've been taught that they're uncorrelated that um, you know, they're, they're a dollar hedge. But then what we saw was that all these big, huge trading desks around the world started slowly grouping them in with their NASDAQ stock portfolio because yeah. they started. To, so anyway, so when things start to correct, you just kind of have to sell everything those big, huge positions do. And that creates beautiful opportunities for, for someone like you who can be emotionless and just pick it off at the bottom. Now you say Facebook, I don't own Facebook. I do own Google, Amazon, and Apple. These are things that if they disappeared would change my life greatly. If the metaverse, like the metaverse not catching on too much, that doesn't sound like bad news to me. That's a great commentary <laughs> on our country. If people don't want to live in the metaverse and perhaps want to live in the real world, that seems good to me. And I understand that Facebook's got a, a fabulous business model and there's so many users and there's so much for cash flow potentials. I have several friends who work for different companies that provide sort of advertising opportunities that, that goes through Facebook and it's, it's, it's just a great business. So um, what's the right value of it? I don't know. It's not, I still don't have a very good opinion on Facebook, but I do have an opinion on the NASDAQ and I think it probably goes higher, mostly because I think that rates aren't going quite as high as people think they're going. But now when you say something like that, you're talking over a longer period. You're not thinking that the, I mean, the NASDAQ may have a short bounce, but you think that basically we've seen the lows here on the NASDAQ for the year? I do. I think that that 16 to 18% down was good, was, was good enough. And now when I just mentioned before about, you know, NASDAQ, and I know you know this, but someone who might be just casually listening, the NASDAQ is very highly correlated to rates going higher because you, from this you know, age old discounted cash flow model from whatever. So let's just, let's just agree that the growth stocks re, um, react very negatively to raises and rates. So they did. And there was huge positions build up in this. So they sold off. And I just think that the, there's two components of it. One, when we start talking about six to seven to eight rate hikes in 2022, I think that's nonsense. I think the one thing that the Fed has showed us before is that they're very, very sensitive to asset prices cratering. And if that happens, they change their tune. I'm not so, I'm so sure that they shouldn't, by the way. There's a giant wealth effect that's been built up in these risk assets over the years. And if stocks, property, crypto all loses trillions and trillions of dollars in market cap, that zaps liquidity from the market and that could help the inflation equation. And I know I'm rambling a little bit here. I hope it sounds a little bit cohesive um, when I tie I know, it up, I think which... it's I think it's cohesive because the, the other thing that Jim's getting to here, ladies and gentlemen, is perhaps, perhaps to some, to some degree, and I don't know that you're going to agree with the way I say it, but uh, there is something in this cycle of inflation that actually is transitory, that, that we did see this increase in the rate of inflation, but we're facing a fiscal cliff here too. We're facing that fiscal cliff where a lot of these benefits are going to stop. People who were getting child credits and other credits uh, at, at home and checks sent to them, that has stopped. And the, the uh, suspension of student loan payments is stopping. And so I, I was talking to a young man the other day. He got his doctorate in physical therapy. Uh, and, and so he's a doctor of physical therapy at 26 years old. He's going to have to start paying $600 a month. And, and, and physical therapists, are, and particularly young ones, are not making tons of money. $600 a month is real money. So you start to have these payments come back. You have these other considerations. There is a headwind that is creating, uh, that is building in the economy that'll slow it down on its own. If you so, there's a risk here, Jim, of of the Fed 
uh, overstepping, right? I mean, so, uh, oh. what, what was that? Seven rate hikes, said Bank America. I, I was on TV Friday with Insana, and both of us were shaking our heads. How, how in God's name do you get to seven rate hikes? I think three might be enough. I think so, too. And if you look at the shape of the yield curve right now, it is flattened out considerably. Now, there might be different reasons that it's flattened. But one thing that it could be telling us and it might be telling us is that the Fed might be making an over hawkish policy mistake, the promises that they're making. I'm only I'm only kind of 30 percent thinking that that's what it is. But historically, guys like me who are rate traders look to the yield curve as this big sort of, um, you know, information uh, reservoir. Uh, so the fact that it's flattened so considerably means that other people may agree that these projections for seven rate hikes are somewhat ridiculous. And I will. I, I said this at the beginning of the show. I'll say it again. This Fed that we're talking about and worried about being uber hawkish is still buying bonds, particularly still buying mortgage backed bonds into a housing market that nobody can take the other side of the argument that hasn't been way overheated for over a year way over here. You're in Naples. You're in the epicenter right now. What, what in the world is the Fed doing buying mortgage bonds to support a housing market that I can't even find a home for sale in that part of Florida? That's right. Well, Jim, I'll find you one because we'd love to have you down here. Uh, I'll work on that. You know, I think you ought to come to Appreciate Naples. It. Definitely. It's, 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 it's a nice place. But, uh, you know, in addition to that, with this rise in housing prices, the Dallas Fed came out with a report that said rents follow housing prices by about 12 months. And we've seen rents already start to spike, but there's a long way to go. And you think about uh, the wage increases and other things that the average American has, is enjoying, they're also seeing these prices higher. And that, so when rents start going up and these other, and prices start going up, they don't have as much money to spend on other things to drive inflation higher. These are problems that start to roll back on themselves. The other thing that the Fed is talking about doing is somewhere around the July that they will stop reinvesting the proceeds in their portfolio. So they've got this $8 trillion portfolio. And when bonds mature in their portfolio, they don't let them run off. They just buy another bond. So Jim's bond buying uh, is new money. But in addition to the new money, every month when their bonds mature, they buy those bonds too. It's a lot of buying pressure out there in the market still keeping rates low, still stimulating. And it certainly, you know, uh, says that, that, that if, it's, if inflation always and everywhere is a monetary phenomenon, uh, then we've got some inflation, but um, some of it's going to go away. So Jim, here we are at the end. Tell us uh, your advice for Fred and Ethel, because they're, they're, they don't like this. It's nervous and uh, they're getting a little queasy here. So there's, there's two things I always say to people. And this is, I say what, what I do. And this is the investor part of me, not the trader. Because I have several different portfolios with several different timeframes, obviously. Uh, there's a couple things. There's going to be volatility. One of the reasons that once or twice a year, all of us are supposed to look at our portfolio and decide if our risk tolerance matches the makeup we have from stocks to bonds. I did that at the end of the year. You and I talked about this. So you always got to be rebalancing so you have dry powder when the, the, when the actual real live correction comes. Uh, secondly, I would say I, I'm not particularly worried. I, and I think there's pockets that are great. And you know, since this has been like 14 months, since the first time I said it on this show, that I think energy was going to be the place. Yes. And I think there was going to be a rotation in that. And I still believe that, particularly with the, the stupid things the administration does regarding uh, regulating the, industry, uh, the energy industry domestically and what's going on abroad. You know, obviously, I'm talking about Ukraine and, and Russia. So there are things that are pushing up and what you mentioned about the Omicron wave fading very, very quickly. But there are uh, still tailwinds for crude oil. So I still am very, very interested in that area, too. I also think uh, gold, silver and miners I'm looking at as well, too, just because for such a long time, gold and silver didn't participate in the anti-Fed hedge the dollar trade. And I think part of that is because three trillion dollars being sucked into the crypto market. People being reminded that crypto market is, is, is a big boy game. That thing moves pretty fast. All of them move pretty fast. So I think gold and silver are starting to catch on a little bit. And I'm looking to add in miners. Does crypto survive here? We still have crypto around 25 years from now, you think? Ooh, I don't know. I hope not, because. The existence of crypto to me um, really mirrors a mistrust in the stewardship of currencies around the globe. And that's why I own crypto. I'm going to stop you know, my weekly investments in crypto when it gets like 2% of my total net worth. 
uh, which, by the way, we, in this environment, it's going to be a long time. Yeah, right. I, you know, buy it, it goes well, down. I don't know. The total net worth might come down and make that crypto look. <laughs> oh, away. yeah, good point. Good point. That could, they can catch up on that side, too. But do I think crypto will be right over years? I'm going to say no. But okay. if it is, if it is, we have a, we, we're going to be in a tough spot. I think I think crypto survives. I, I, I think that certainly a digital currency world survives. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly what happens to the Bitcoins of the world, but I think it probably stays around. We'll, well, Jim, we'll talk about it in 25 years. And Amen. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll see who's we'll see who's right. Um, Jim Murio, managing director of TJM Institutional Services, a terrific uh, addition to the forecast. We always learn so much. Thank you, Jim, very much for Thank being you, with us. Have a good day. Have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, we're coming back with Dan Mahaffey. And then after that, Mark Hamrick from bankrate.com. You want to find out what's going on with rates, what we're thinking about that the Fed's doing and inflation and how high rates could go. Will they invert? Mark Hamrick in our third segment. Please stay with us. We're going to be right back with Mahaffey. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc., Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We're glad you could join us this week on the Farcast. Now back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Thanks for being with us this week. Terrific Farcast. God, Yurio is wonderful. He's just so good at this and he's been doing it for so long and he focuses and focuses. It's, it's terrific. We always learn. We always learn so much. Thinks that we've made the bottom in the NASDAQ. This is it. This is where we should be buying in here. Do you feel like buying today? One of Farr's rules is, if it feels bad, do it. Forget everything you learned in the 70s. If it feels bad, do it. Buy when it feels bad. Sell when it feels bad. When everybody's saying the thing's only going higher and it's going through the roof and it's so exciting, that's when you sell. A calmer voice, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress and the senior political analyst on the Farcast, now in season five. Welcome back, Dan. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. Thank you, as always. Glad to see you. It looks like uh, it's snowing in Michigan. Yes, calling in from snowy Michigan this week. Oh, my goodness. So uh, lots going on, of course, this this week. Uh, where can we start? We've got uh, we, we had some Fed uh, confirmation hearings hearings, and it, I don't think it looks um, I don't think it looks very good. Uh, for Sarah Bloom Raskin's nomination. She seems of the three nominees to be the most politically charged. And she has a chip on her shoulder about green energy and the banks. And they think that she'd regulate the banks more heavily if they're not more supportive of environmental issues. Uh, what's happening with that? And why is it so charged? Well, I think it's so charged, one, because you talked about that that bevy of climate writings and statements she has on this, the idea that the Fed would be leaning one way or another on specific industries to meet uh, political goals, uh, even if climate is seen as something beyond politics by those activists. Uh, it, it does not augur well, given the close divide that there is and the need for uh, bipartisan consensus on most of these nominations. Uh, hers is most charged. Uh, I don't think it, it doesn't matter at all in this town that uh, her husband, Jamie Raskin, of course, too, is one of the uh, January 6th committee members and was a Trump impeachment manager. So everything is partisan. Everything is charged in this town. But also, uh, again, her statements on climate have had GOP senators, uh, including ranking member Toomey, an important voice, uh, concerned about her stance. You think she makes it or no? As a I think it's tough to say on this one. I think she's probably the least likely. 
Uh, so much of this, too, we'll have to see how it pans out on, on this and other things in the Senate. I think it's worth raising the stroke of Senator Ben Ray Lujan. Thank goodness it was a minor stroke, but his convalescence has him out now for four to six weeks, uh, which means when you're, when you're down a senator, uh, a lot of these things are going to have to go onto some kind of, a kind of hold in the 50-50 Senate. Senator Lujan, 49 years old. Uh, relatively, uh, relatively very young man, uh, 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 particularly in the Senate and particularly from my perch. Uh, uh, he'll, he, he'll be back and we're hearing very good reports. When things happen like this, when senators have health events and major health events, do they typically underplay the real consequence uh, I mean, you know, the, in the old days, you know, they, you know, the senator would have a stroke and they'd say the senator has a bit of a headache today and it's going to take some personal time. Does that still happen? No, I think in this day and age, the, the transparency of it and also the fact that he's uh, 49, he's younger, he, you know, it's not sort of like in the end of his career where they'd say he has a headache and you see them rolling Strom Thurmond out onto the to the Senate right. floor for a vote. Uh, right. No, I don't think it's like that in, in this case. And in this day and age, there's too many cameras, too many uh, prying eyes to keep something like that secret for long like they used to. Uh, no, but that said, look, uh, something like that happens. Of course, everyone immediately looks to see uh, what party the governor is. Of course, New Mexico's uh, governor is a Democrat, so it's not like the balance could switch if, God forbid, his health became worse. Uh, but it does complicate things when you're in a 50-50 Senate. And there will be certain procedural measures where you know one Republican will take a knee and not vote. Uh, to allow the basics to get through, but on something that might be controversial or, uh, you know, an upcoming, we'll talk about the SCOTUS pick now, at least four to six weeks. I don't think that affects that timeline too much, but anything sooner, uh, again, kind of a, a pause, big pause button has been pressed in the Senate while he and the rules, the, Because the rules are that the senators have to be there in person to cast their votes, correct? Correct. They, they, they cannot call these in. They cannot do them by video. They can't do them. He cannot vote uh, from right. New Mexico. He has to be present in the Senate. He has to right. be in the Senate chamber to vote. Yes? Yes. Yes. So, and to do the quorum and reach the quorums and all those. Yeah. So things. it's very important. And right now, then that leaves the Democrats with 49 votes until Senator Lujan actually returns for these votes. Uh, and that can slow down, that can slow things down. Okay, and we do, you, you said SCOTUS, which is the Supreme Court of the United States, and we've got picks. Tell us about the picks. Is there a big issue here? And how quickly will President Biden's nominee make it through the Senate? We're not going to see anything as quickly as uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett. That was, a, that was a record. And even uh, both Biden and Judiciary Chairman Durbin in the Senate have said they want to go uh, slower and more deliberate. Uh, again, a lot of the controversy, though, and I, I don't think this is anything new because Biden said as much while he was on the campaign trail, uh, would be that he'd be picking a black woman for the seat. Um, uh, some people have gone up in arms about that, making an issue about that. I, I don't think it's really anything that new for presidents, though, to want to uh, claim a, a historic pick or, or limit it. Uh, Trump himself said that he was going to limit it to women when he was picking uh, right. Amy Coney Barrett to, to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, you can go back to uh, Reagan lauding the fact that uh, Antonin Scalia would be the first Italian-American. Uh, so all these things, uh, you know, everyone plays this up, and I think that's just politics. And Judge uh, Scalia liked that, by the way, too. And he was yeah. very proud of his Italian heritage. Uh, Judge Scalia exactly. was a friend and, and boy, was he he was one of the nicest and funniest guys. Uh, and what a great American and patriot, Judge Scalia. You don't have to agree with every decision that came out of, of, of his mouth. But yeah, let me tell you, if you ever spent time with the guy, you would have a new best friend. Promise. Yeah. A, a reminder, too, of an era where where people in Washington could keep policy and friendships uh in different lanes he, he and justice ginsburg were great friends exactly. they got along exactly. very very well Te clear clear testament to that uh, um, but uh, but uh, the, we, the picks we have look we've got judge katanji brown jackson of the dc circuit uh california supreme court judge uh leandra kruger uh district judge uh, j michelle childs all talented jurists there's a, there's a list i'm sure they're going through i i don't think we want to go through this episode going on, on the pros and cons of each of them. Look, the, the Democrats have the votes. They, they'll be able to move this through. 
Um, you know, I think the, the question is how much uh, mudslinging, how, how dirty does this process get? I, I don't think a lot of the, the lead Republicans want to get into that. I think Mitch McConnell, John Cornyn, and others are being a little more cordial in their tone. It's not a, not a great look to be going after a potentially historic uh, Supreme Court nomination. Uh, but look, there's others who are going to uh, want to position themselves for, for 2024. Uh, both sides think this can whip up the base in 2022. Uh, and so, uh, you know, politics being politics these days, I don't think it's going to be entirely smooth sailing. Okay, so but bottom line here, uh, the president's nominee will make it through based on a uh, based on the they've got the vote. Uh, the vice president cast the vote. They'll get that done. They've got it. So yeah. get what they're, and they're going to do it. Uh, the presumption is they're going to do it before the November election. Uh, and sure. then what is the where's what's what time frame would be have the greatest political impact for that election and for the president? Is it is it June or July that 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 is probably the best time to to get that nomination through? Uh, you think so? You, you'd want to be able to point back on it, and then you know perhaps get some other uh, accomplishments done right in September and October. Uh, per, perhaps you can do that. Um, you know, I think it, it comes down to to look at all the other items on the calendar: the the competition legislation with China, the other nominations. Uh, do they do something on the budget in the next fifteen days? Uh, what does a longer term budget plan look like? All these are wild cards up in the air. Uh, let's move on to uh, Ukraine, Russia, uh, Putin, and and let let me hear what you think is really is is really happening there. Uh, you're uh, actually uh, uh, Tucker Carlson, who's become a a really much more significant uh, political figure, uh, more influential, is pushing the U.S. and 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 it sounds like Republicans are listening to him. Uh, just to stay out, that we're not involved in Ukraine and stay yeah. away. What's going on? And 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 uh, uh, Putin came out and spoke. Uh, Vladimir Putin came out and spoke this week. Said we weren't taking him seriously. Really? Yeah. Looks to me like that's all we're talking about. Well, look. Certainly, the uh, Biden administration. We're sending some troops to shore up the Baltics uh, to reassure our NATO allies. Uh, but again, to be clear, those are our existing NATO allies. That is not a deployment to Ukraine. Uh, we've continued to give weapons and assistance to the Ukrainians. The, the Russians are dug in. Uh, some people are saying they, they might not move during the Olympics. Uh, you know, who knows whether whether there's uh, whether that actually matters, but that that Putin as a uh, as a gesture to she would not not do anything during the Olympics. Um, but look, Tucker Carlson, that's interesting to see how. Uh, among the Republican grassroots, uh, a much more pro-Russia uh, message being circulated there. And that weighs on policymakers because on, uh, surprisingly, these, well, not surprisingly, the Republicans in the Senate are the most hawkish on Russia, uh, but their voters are, are getting a message at night that is actually uh, much more pro-Moscow. Is Tucker becoming the new Rush Limbaugh? Look, I think he is a very powerful voice. That, that might be a good comparison. Uh, but I think he's also really tearing up the script on, on some of the uh, conservative uh, tenets of the past. Uh, the uh, foreign policy, he's much more isolationist. He's a lot more skeptical of business and corporate power. Uh, Wall Street, uh, he's, a, he's a very powerful voice on the right. And uh, that new Tucker, Tucker being the new Rush Limbaugh is a very good comparison. He, he's in his early 50s. Rush Limbaugh was considered for president a couple of times. You get that voice and that face cranked up. Pay attention to Tucker Carlson, folks. I've known Tucker since he was a, a teenager uh, and, and uh, have always been very friendly with him. He had different iterations of his political uh, rhetoric, shall we say. They have changed over the years. And he has become far more strident and far more right wing. He was always conservative, um, but to spend time with Tucker, a very nice guy, I promise. Uh, you would enjoy spending time with Tucker. But uh, he has become more strident, much more right uh, right wing. And a lot of his rhetoric at times does not seem all that reasonable to me, uh, to the point where I'm scratching my head a bit. But it plays well on the airwaves. He's very bright. Just know one thing. 
This is a very, very bright man and only in his early 50s. So pay attention there. Dan, you had said, and we've got to go. Uh, we're over time here. I can't believe it. You sort of suggested that basically what Putin is doing with Ukraine is not going to end up in an invasion, but a series of negotiations that it will ultimately win for Putin without really firing shots. Do you still feel that way? His goal is still that. It's still to push NATO back. Uh, what I've been uh, impressed with thus far is the f way that Biden has kept the Western allies together. Uh, I think where uh, Russia thought they could get wedges between us, and look, the Germans are, are, are going to be wobbly. Biden, uh, in all these stages, has kept Paris, Brussels, London, the Poles, he's brought in the Italians, all of them staying together and coordinated on this. And that's where I think uh, Putin's been somewhat actually disappointed, is that he's not gotten more fracture in the West and that Biden's spine has kind of stiffened a bit in the face of this challenge. You still think no shots fired ultimately? Uh, I, that's tough to say. I, I think at this point the, that the Russians do some kind of incursion, but not a, not a major conflict. Not a major conflict, but some kind of incursion. And how does the U.S. answer that? Now I'm going way over time. Look, I think it, it remains to be seen because the the package of, of sanctions that have been negotiated in the Senate, that negotiation broke down this week. So uh, it's, it, I think it comes down to that package of financial sanctions and, and what that shapes up to be. And will Europe stand up to the actual imposition? Uh, will the EU stand up to the actual imposition of those sanctions? I think they'll do it on the financial side. I think they've already, though, quietly taken oil and gas off the table because they just have no alternative. Right. Okay. Uh, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, the senior political analyst on the Farcast. Thank you so much, Dan. We'll talk to you again next week. We always learn so much. Ladies Good and gentlemen, we're coming back with Mark Hamrick from Bankrate.com, uh, one of the leading voices in the financial news media for over 30 years and one of my great friends when we come back on the Farcast. We're glad you could join us on this week's edition of the Farcast. Later on in February, we have scheduled special guests, Jenny Harrington and Liz Young from SoFi Investments. Now, this week's special guest, Mark Hamrick, and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. Joining me now, my great friend, Mark Hamrick. He is the Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst for Bankrate.com. He, he's uh, out of the National Press Building, though he looks, actually, I got to tell you, folks, a little inside baseball this morning. Looks like he's out of his living room today. Uh, lovely home there, Mark, by the way. I mean, that's really a very pretty home you have. Very kind, uh, my friend. Yeah, I mean, I think I've been in the office probably a total of six days during the pandemic. And uh, I, to my wife's dismay, I have commandeered this dining room table. And uh, anything that would be attractive in this picture is obviously credited to her. But you are looking well, as always, my friend. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I had commandeered the dining room table here in Florida. And my wife and daughter moved me over into this side room. And I have this virtual background up because you don't want to see the utility closet in which I'm sitting and have been and to which I have been sequestered. Uh, but, um, you know, they they I have fewer complaints and they can't hear me when I do these various shows and programs. My TV equipment is in here. I've got a chair ready. And I keep, by the way, a blue blazer on a hanger right over to the left there so I can put it on before the TV hits and look a little bit respectable. CNBC actually gets a tie, but um, uh, it's part of it's awful. And part of it where I don't have to go to the airport and get on an airplane and get in a car and check into a hotel and do big meet and greets with a bunch of people I don't know. Uh, sorry, I love everybody I get to meet, of course, and, and make lots of new friends out there. But it is uh, it's a real process and it takes a lot of energy. And then you go to the dinner and then you go to the conference and then you give the speech. 
and then you meet the people and then you go to the airport and it's a several day affair. And I've become much more efficient being able to do it from here. I do miss meeting people, but it's a, it's a high energy process. And when I do it, I don't do it halfway, as you might imagine. I like, I'm going to make sure I meet everybody there. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it, it does take some energy. So yeah, it's pluses and minuses of COVID. Well, Mark, we have a interest rates uh, on the 10-year treasury are higher this morning. Uh, unemployment data, you know, a little bit off week after week here. Uh, are, are we seeing an economy that seems to be slowing down of its own accord here, do you think, in the beginning of 2022 as we enter the month of February? I don't think there's any doubt that we have seen that, Michael, but I think if anything, some of the data we're seeing right now, uh, also trying to translate what the health experts tell us is that maybe this Omicron hit is now passing, and I'm talking about the economy, and obviously, you know, we know how these relationships are complicated, you know, we know that hospitalizations are tend to be followed by a peak in deaths, and I think that, you know, we know that the high-frequency job market data has looked very weak of late. Uh, we saw uh, a, a very sharp decline in unemployment claims and new applications for unemployment benefits getting to the lowest level in 52 years in early December. And, and we've come off of that a little bit. Uh, and as we know, uh, recently, we, we heard from the payrolls processing firm ADP that their measure of payrolls slipped by 301,000 in January. But yes. I think maybe the markets are looking through this and saying this too shall pass. And I think that's probably the way to think of this well, right now. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me, Mark, when we started getting through the vaccine periods and we started getting into the fall before we got into Omicron, there was great optimism about the economy reopening. And we saw stock prices and other things can begin to surge. That seems to have stopped as the Fed has made everyone understand that they mean what they say, that they're going to change uh, monetary policy, and that they're going to begin tightening. And that seems to have changed sentiment. That seems to have changed the mood. That has investors now uh, shooting stocks, taking them out and shooting them uh, on an earnings miss. Uh, fewer subscribers added that we, we didn't make as much money as we thought we were going to. We're not losing money. We just made less money than we thought we were going to make. It's a slower rate of growth and stocks are down 20 percent in the next in the next 10 minutes. I mean, this is a nervous market. This is a um, this is the Missouri show me market here. Uh, so uh, do you think that there is a chance here, Mark, that with this bit of a slowdown, we might actually be seeing that this part of inflation was actually transitory? We've got some inventory builds that are starting. We've got consumer spending that is starting to fall off. The savings rate is going back up. If the consumer is nervous and the consumer drives the economy and they're not spending as much money, doesn't that in and of itself slow economic growth? Well, we've seen on some of the uh, components of inflation data that uh, some of these contributors have come off of their recent peaks. Uh, and I hope we see more of that. Um, you know, it's interesting when we think about what the Fed can and cannot do, right, Michael, because uh, Jerome Powell, God bless him, cannot hire 60, 60 to 80,000 truck drivers, right? Uh, he is a mighty man, but he cannot get those uh, containers off of cargo ships That's and right. uh, transport it across the country, however that might be. He cannot improve the capacity of production for semiconductors either globally or in the United States. So what he can do is hurt demand. Uh, and maybe the anticipation of higher interest rates is having some of that impact. But as you know, Michael, when we look inside what the consumers expressing, whether it's our own bank rate data, where people basically said uh, inflation and the pandemic were their major concerns uh, for this year in terms of their own personal finances, uh, yet they're, they're still pretty, uh, they're in pretty good shape. Uh, you know, we did a survey that we just released where uh, this number is elevated, even though it sounds low, 44% of Americans can pay an emergency expense of $1,000 or more from savings. And you say, 
OMG, a majority doesn't have those resources, but that's the highest we found in the eight years of doing the survey. So personal savings rate has come off the peak, but people still have some money to spend. We know that the fiscal and monetary tailwinds that have been propelling the economy uh, are relenting or are in transition. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with the Biden administration agenda, but so far uh, it's build back never right now. Well, it does. Yeah. It seems build back never now. And of course, uh, Senator Bay, Ben Ray Lujan's uh, current health crisis is going to make that a bit more difficult because there's not going to be anything that can happen while he is not in Washington now uh, for those Democratic votes. Mark, we saw yesterday or the day before, I can't remember, I read so much stuff. The Atlanta Fed has suggested that GDP growth for the first quarter is going to be one-tenth of one percent. One-tenth of one percent from the Atlanta, Atlanta Fed. How does that jibe with uh, bank rate data? And what are your expectations from, from your surveys for GDP growth for 2022? Yeah, um, we haven't surveyed on that question uh, precisely. We do survey on that uh, from time to time. But what I would say is, first of all, uh, you know, between the Atlanta Fed and the New York Fed uh, forecasts for the for GDP, they don't tend to be great, to be frank about it. Uh, and the other part is that we know that we're really only one third of the way through this current first quarter. And uh, you, you know, say, I let me let me stop for one second. When you say they don't tend to be great, you mean they don't tend to be accurate. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. And, and, and they can be wildly inaccurate. Yes. But it wasn't it was about a year ago, I think, where the Atlanta Fed had a wildly optimistic number for GDP growth for 2021. And the and, the, and particularly the third quarter for 2021 was somewhere up around 10 percent, something like that if memory serves, it was a, it was a huge number. And, and of course, way high and way off. They, they have their formulas, but I think if you look at the direction and not the precision, yeah. the direction is, is lower. The, the direction is for something more muted. Um, and, uh, and I'm trying to get at what would be driving that much, much lower GDP growth. Well, look at uh, all kinds of uh, data, whether it's uh, traffic or reservations made in restaurants, basically uh, among the lowest uh, during the pandemic uh, of late. And, I th and, and there are some signs that that's coming back. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, Census Bureau indicated, I think the number was 8.8 .8 million Americans workers uh, were sidelined uh, last month. I think the first two weeks of the month because of Omicron. Uh, they were either themselves uh, quarantining, uh, testing positive, some combination thereof, caring for a loved one, or their work had to close. And, you know, we've all seen that, whether it's in New York, Broadway uh, going dark for a time, uh, or at least individual theaters, restaurants cutting back, or a sign on the door that says, sorry, we can't staff. There's a store my wife wants to frequent in downtown D.C. They have not been able to staff here lately. Um, and we're seeing that time and time again. So between the supply chain uh, mess uh, and the Omicron wave, uh, the economy has sort of run into a bit of a buzzsaw here. And it is absolutely stalled the recovery. But to the earlier point, I, th I think that there's reason to believe that this is going to basically be a, a more of a January effect, not the usual kind of January effect we associate with Wall Street, uh, and that we can move forward. We have had several months here, Michael, where during the pandemic, obviously March and April 2020, and then three months during the pandemic, we had declines in payrolls. Yes. So we, we've seen these waves with economic activity. Uh, and I, I don't think, you know, we, we can be surprised by the reason or the sort of individual characteristic of it, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. And, you know, I think some of our assumptions for uh, this point in time remain intact, Michael, and that is high degree of uncertainty, high degree of volatility. And, and maybe we'll see, you know, who knows how markets will continue to react to this prospect of or likelihood of Federal Reserve tightening. But, you know, the other part of that, Michael, is in our bread and butter at bank rate is, we wouldn't have expected for record low interest rates to have lasted forever. And then the question is, what? it's not just a question of raising interest rates, right? It's, it's the timing of it, and it's sort of 
where you end up at the end of this cycle. And those are all right. ultimately impossible to answer right, right now. Well, and you know, it, we, we can say that we know expect these, these easy money times or low interest rates to last forever. And then somehow in the back of our minds, we're always shocked when they don't. I have a friend who's been a producer for years at a local television station in Washington who says, you know, I swear to God, Michael, Every year, right around November 15th, somebody looks up and goes, oh, my God, Thanksgiving's coming. Do we have B-roll? What sort of <laughs> stories are we going to do for Thanksgiving? We're shocked by Thanksgiving every year. You know, I, I feel like, yeah, we get we get shocked by all of these things that we know are coming. Uh, go back to unemployment for one second. Uh, job openings in the country now are about five million more than those who are listed among the unemployed according to the Fed surveys, and when, when you list yourself as unemployed in the unemployment rolls, it means basically you're looking for a job. You haven't quit looking for a job and removed yourself from the group of those unemployed and looking. So there are five or six million more job openings easily than there are people looking for jobs. Why are people staying out of the workforce? The workforce is lower uh, than that, I mean, we're, we're, I don't even know if we're right at pre-pandemic levels, but in terms of the population, workforce participation's down. Right. How do we get people back to work? What, why is this happening? And why are all those trucking jobs open? You know that as a long-term trucker in this country, you can make $130,000 a year? I mean, pe people are going and getting their MBAs and coming out of MBA school, getting to $80,000 a year. You can drive a truck without having to pay for the MBA for $130,000 a year. Come on. Yeah, but you might want to work in an office uh, where you can maybe go home in the evening too, and I and I think that is that is... worth fifty thousand dollars a year. I mean, that's an expensive choice to make. No, I, you I, for I sure. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, yeah. you know, if we're trying to figure out how we're going to support our family, fifty thousand dollars a lot of money. Well, I mean, I'll call in my two weeks' notice today and uh, begin the training. And uh, we'll I've see got how a number of friends who actually own trucking <laughs> companies, and they would love to hear from you. Now, I know, I know, my friend Christopher Hamrick, who, by the way, ladies and gentlemen just celebrated his 30th Thank birthday, you. if you yes. can believe such a thing. Congratulations, Mark. Happy birthday to Christopher. Is completing his MBA right now, isn't Thank he? Thank you. Yes, yes. Uh, USC, and uh, we're very proud of him. He lives a kind of sandwich between uh, West Hollywood and Beverly Hills, which isn't oh, a bad place for a 30-year-old young man to be. Yes. Yeah. Don't, we, <laughs> don't we feel sorry for Christopher Hammer? So, yeah, and, 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 but, but, but Mark, this unemployment and getting people back to work, we're running out of time. We're already out of time. Uh, Unemployment is, is continues to be a big issue and getting the workforce back to work through this pandemic as we move to endemic, I hope will be one of the positive signs. As we look at the balance of the year, Mark, what keeps you awake at night? This will be my last question for you. I have many, many more, but we're just out of time. I think, you know, the top two things to worry about and, and to be hopeful for this year are the pandemic and inflation, right? And and how those two things break are going to be very important. And they've obviously the inflation's been the surprise story of the last recent past. Uh, obviously, Omicron, Delta, the pandemic has been the shocker of now going on three years. And and they continue to be, I think, the key trends to watch with respect to uh, how things may turn out. Obviously, geopolitical. You know, Russia, Ukraine, China, Taiwan, there's always surprises uh, seeming lurking there. But, uh, you know, midterm elections in November, uh, plenty of things that need to have some resolution of those stories. And uh, we'll probably be around to talk about it, Michael. So I look forward to that. We'll be around to talk about it. And thank you so much, Mark. We always learn so much when you're on. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Hamrick is the Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst for Bankrate.com. Thank you so much, Mark, for being with us. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another Farcast, where we have, I think, tried to do our best again this week to cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. We hope it's been helpful to you that you've learned a little bit this week. Thank you so much for those folks who have been coming up to me and talking to me about the Farcast, the folks that you like, the guests that we have, the things that you learn. If there are things that you'd like us to cover, please reach out to Harry Jennings, hjennings at farmiller.com, our great producer. For Harry Jennings and all of us at Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, I'm Michael Farr. Have a wonderful week.
Thanks for being with us on this week's edition of the Farcast. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoy making the show for you. Thanks to Michael's guest, Jim Burio, Dan Mahaffey, and special guest, Mark Hamrick. We love hearing from you every week, and we try to respond to all of your notes and suggestions. You can reach us at hjennings at farmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all major podcast platforms. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed and provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of Hightower Advisors or Farr Miller in Washington, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Farr Miller in Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell and Please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help. And I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Please share the Farcast with friends and colleagues. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller and Washington LLC is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC have not independently verified accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representation or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements, errors, or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisor for related questions.